You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. Our text today is from John 20, beginning in verse 11. But Mary stood, weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. But she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, For I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. This is the word of the Lord. Well, for the season of Eastertide, which is the 40 days after Easter, We're going to be exploring the final portions of John's gospel, and the reason for this is because these final chapters of John highlight how the resurrection of Jesus changes everything. The resurrection changes how we relate to God, the world, our community, ourselves, the future, eternity. The empty tomb was not just a historic event that we look back and remember. The empty tomb was also the beginning of a new creation that we are called to continually live into even today. And today we're going to begin by looking at a passage that is focused on recognizing Jesus. If you're taking notes, that's the title of this morning's message, Recognizing Jesus. Now, a Spanish author named Carmen Corday wrote a short story about a mom who gave birth to a son who was blind. But she didn't want her boy to grow up knowing that he was blind or different than other children, so she forbid the entire family and everyone that they knew from using words like light and color and sight or anything else that would indicate that he was missing this really vital sense. But one day, a little girl jumps over the fence into the boy's backyard, and they begin to talk, and not knowing the rules of the home, she begins to describe sight and color and vision and the world that you can observe through the eyes. And she shattered everything that he thought he he knew and grew up knowing, making him aware that there was something significant that he had been missing, something significant in his life that he had been living without. And it could be said that we as Christians are like this little girl. We are sent to our neighbors to describe what a life of seeing is like, and not just seeing in general, but seeing Jesus. 
In fact, this was the simple yet extremely powerful testimony of a woman named Mary who was the first witness of the resurrection. We're told in verse 18, Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have what? I have seen the Lord. And that he had said these things to her. That was her testimony. I've seen him. Being a gospel witness is about inviting people to live with eyes open to the beauty and the life that is found through believing in the resurrected Jesus. Being a gospel witness is about calling others to look upon Jesus with eyes of faith and to receive his words to us as truth. But in order to have Mary's testimony be our testimony, in order to be able to be in the world saying, I have seen the Lord, we have to first learn to recognize Jesus ourselves. Now, there's an illustration I've shared a couple times over the years, but I think it illustrates this point beautifully. In 2007, a world-renowned violinist named Joshua Bell went into a Washington, D.C. metro station with jeans, a t-shirt, and a hat on and began to play his violin. Now, according to a newspaper article, three days before, he had filled the house of the Boston Symphony Hall where even decent seats were over 100 bucks. Two weeks later, he would perform to a standing room only audience that was so respectful of his artistry that they would stifle their cough until silences between the movements. And yet on this Friday, as he played for almost an hour playing some of the most beautiful pieces known to man on a $3.5 million violin in the metro station, he was almost entirely ignored. Only about seven people stopped to listen briefly. Musical genius right in front of them. And yet to most, he was just a common street performer. The glaring dilemma that we see in this passage is that we can easily miss Jesus. This is not unique to Mary. In fact, we find this happening elsewhere in the Bible, like in Luke, when two of Jesus' disciples are on a road called the road to Emmaus, it's the day, the day of the resurrection, and yet they don't know that Jesus is risen. And Jesus comes, and he greets them on the path, and yet they don't initially recognize him. The gospel writer John tells us later that when the disciples are out fishing on the boat, Jesus appears to them on the shore, and yet they don't initially recognize him. And John tells us here that when Mary went to the tomb, the same thing happens. Look at me again in verse 14. Having said this, she turned around and she saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. She saw him, but didn't saw him, see him. <laughs> she saw him, but didn't see him. So there are two questions asked uh, by both the angels and Jesus himself that indicate why she may have been missing Jesus, even though he was right in front of her, and more specifically today, why we may not recognize Jesus either. And those two questions are these. Why are you weeping and whom are you seeking? Why are you weeping and whom are you seeking? So let's look first at the question, why are you weeping? Now, I, I'm imagining that everyone here at one time in their life has cried and knows what the experience of crying is like. 
And anyone who has ever cried knows that your sight can become obscured by tears. It blurs your vision. That's why if you're driving and for whatever reason you begin to cry, like, you know, the emotional Whitney Houston song comes on or something, you know, triggers in your mind and heart. If you begin to cry while you're driving, you ought to pull over because you are a risk to your life and to the life of other people. Your, your vision is being obscured. And so there's a very, very practical explanation as to why Mary may not recognize Jesus. Her vision is blurred by tears. But this also serves as a metaphor, I believe, something deeper for us to see here, one that I believe that John is stressing for us, the readers. In fact, there are four, if you paid attention, there are four different times that we're told that Mary was weeping in this passage. And when the Bible repeats words like that, it means that we, the reader, are supposed to pay attention to this word. It is framing what is going on here. Now, let me mention this. I do not believe that Mary is being shamed for her weeping. I do not believe that Mary is being paraded as sort of emotional or irrational or some other kind of caricature or you want to assign being emotional to women or anything like that. That is not what is going on in this passage. In fact, the Bible invites us to weep and the Bible actually gives us space for our sorrow that we experience in life. I want to remind you of something we actually looked at earlier this year in John chapter 11. We find Jesus himself weeping at a tomb of his friend named Lazarus at the very same place, at the very same situation. So weeping is an appropriate response to many things that we're going to experience in life, death included. But here's the deal. What Mary must begin to recognize is that something life-altering has just happened here. Something has flipped the script. Yes, weeping is appropriate in the face of death, but death has just been conquered. <laughs> Jesus has been resurrected. He is risen, and he is alive. And what John 20 shows us is that there is a kind of blinding grief that stems from a fear that Jesus is still dead. Mary illustrates that even people who love Jesus deeply, and she loves him so much. But what it shows us is that even people that love him deeply can still live as if Jesus is not risen. As if Jesus is a lifeless, powerless figure from the past that we mourn and remember, but is absolutely absent today. And as much as Mary is looking for Jesus, she is earnestly seeking him. In fact, when everyone else has left, her problem is that she is looking for a lifeless Jesus, not a risen Jesus. The angels would say in another gospel, why are you looking for the living among the dead? Her love for Jesus is big, super big. But her vision of his resurrection is extremely small. So the question, why are you weeping, isn't challenging crying in general. Please do not read it that way. But what it is challenging is weeping in this present moment. In other words, why are you crying right now? 
The writer of Ecclesiastes writes writes this, for everything there is a season, a time for every matter under the sun, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. So the question about weeping suggests that sorrow is not what the present moment requires. This is Easter morning, for goodness sake. This isn't a time to mourn. This is a time to celebrate. This is a time for hopefulness and confidence in God's power. Again, I want to stress this point. The empty tomb does not eliminate weeping entirely. But it does transform our experience of weeping. It does transform weeping's power over us and our hope. Its ability to control our vision of Jesus and the future that we now have in him by faith. Because here's the honest truth. We too can become spiritually blinded by our hopelessness and despair and excessive sorrow. We can lose sight of new life. And it's one thing to experience sadness. We're all going to experience sadness. But it's another thing to be consumed by it. Martin Lloyd-Jones in the 20th century wrote this. Our danger is to submit ourselves to our feelings and to allow them to dictate us, to govern and to master us and to control the whole of our lives. Like these original disciples, we can allow our feelings and our emotions to control our narrative, the narrative of our lives, instead of God's word. Now remember, Jesus had explicitly told his disciples that he was going to die, be buried, but then on the third day, he was going to raise to new life. He told them over and over and over again. He spoke to them this hope, and yet as this weekend, Easter weekend progressed, They began believing their fears and their sorrows more than they were believing what Jesus had spoken. And we can do this as well. We do this as well. And so here is what I urge you from this passage. Be attuned to your emotions. Be self-aware. Understand your feelings. Understand what is going on inside. Give vent to your sorrow but refuse to allow them to determine who Jesus is and refuse to allow those feelings to determine what Jesus is capable of doing in your life. Amen? The empty tomb changes the narrative. The empty tomb changes your future. The empty tomb changes your outlook on life. Now I want you to think about this. If despair is what can blur our vision, then imagine what the hope of the resurrection can do in giving us clarity and vibrancy. Imagine how it can change your vision of life. The psalmist in Psalm 27 said, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. I believe because of the resurrection life of Jesus, God will allow me to see life and hope. So I watched this TV interview with a scientist uh, from Berkeley who developed these glasses that correct color blindness. Have you heard about these things? Freaking amazing. And so what it did was it shared these testimonials and showed these videos of people who were otherwise colorblind receiving these glasses 
and putting them on for the first time and seeing the world and seeing beauty and seeing color and seeing vibrancy and just becoming overwhelmed. It was like, kind of like I got misty-eyed, just seeing these people see in this way for the very first time. Imagine what is being offered to us through Jesus. John 20 is an invitation to see a life of beauty through the lens of the gospel. To see hope and life and vibrancy through the lens of the empty tomb. Amen? Let's look secondly at this question. Whom are you seeking? Whom are you seeking? Another reason why we may not recognize Jesus, alive, present, active in our lives, is because he looks nothing like what we would expect him to look like. Look at me again in verse 15. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? I love this. Supposing him to be the gardener, she said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I will take him away. So think about this. How would you imagine Jesus's appearance after the resurrection, on the very day of the resurrection? For me, in my imagination, I imagine Jesus beaming with light, beaming with glory, just like color and light and piercing just these, these radiant beams coming off of his body. We sing in uh, one of our hymns and bursting forth in glorious day like I imagine, uh, you know, raw power and explosions and the ground breaking through like these laser beams of light coming off of Jesus. Maybe I'm alone in that. I don't know. It's awfully quiet. Um, but instead, Mary sees what looks like a gardener. Don't glamorize this. Like, think Carhartt coveralls and a straw hat. Think about this. The majestic, eternal Son of God, who is King over all creation, whom God has exalted and given the name above every name in heaven and on earth, who is seated at the right hand of the Father, who's the one who stands in victory over death and ushers in life for all humanity, the one that angels bow before and worship eternally. That same Jesus looked like he could be a landscaper. So Jesus' incarnation, which means Jesus being fully God and fully human, 100% God, 100% human, as Jesus took on flesh and blood and dwelt among us, what it means is that Jesus is so down to earth, so close to us and intimate with us in our humanity and in our struggle and in our suffering that he may be overlooked. This is what had been prophesied by the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament. Isaiah 53 says, He who had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. In other words, there was nothing physically, and this may make you uncomfortable, nothing physically attractive about Jesus. He was not an attractive individual. Nothing about his appearance that would cause us to take a second look at him. Nothing. We are often so busy searching for the sensational. 
We seek after things that fit our extraordinary expectations of big and bright and magical. We say silly things like, well, I like to imagine God like this, and I like to imagine God like that. So much so that we are unwilling to take a second look at the real Jesus. We who are in the evangelical church in the West today are so addicted to earthly metrics of cool and relevant and attractive and fun and hip and trending and popular and booming and fill in the, in the blank that our expectations look less and less and less and less like the Jesus that Mary meets here. So the question for Mary is, believe it or not, a question for us. Who are you seeking? Who are you seeking? Is it the Jesus of your expectations? Is it the Jesus of your demands? Is it some popular whatever Jesus? Or is it the Jesus who associates so closely with the lowly, with the unimportant, with the uncelebrated, with the unattractive, that he's often overlooked. Soren Kierkegaard told the parable of a prince who faced a dilemma. Once upon a time, there was a prince who was eager to marry a lovely woman to be his future queen. And near his palace was a city that he would often frequent as he was sent on tasks for his father, the king. And one day he was passing through a poorer section of the city and he turned and glanced upon a woman that struck him instantly with love. And so he continued day by day to see her falling more and more in love with her. But there was a problem. How would he obtain her hand in marriage? Of course, he could order her to the palace and just make her his wife. But even a prince would like to feel that a girl that marries him wants to marry him. Or perhaps, somewhat more graciously, he could arrive at her door in his most magnificent royal uniform and with a bow, ask her hand in marriage. But even a prince wants to marry for love. Or he could masquerade as a peasant and try to gain her interest, and after he had proposed, he could take off the mask. But the facade would be phony. He couldn't win her heart by deceiving her. So finally, a, re a real solution came to mind. He would give up his kingly role entirely and move into her neighborhood. There he would take up work as a carpenter. And during his work in the day and during his time off in the evening, he would get acquainted with the people, beginning to share their interests and their concerns. And in due time, he would make her acquaintance in the natural way. And should she come to love him as he had already come to love her, then he would ask her for her hand in marriage. And what this parable illustrates for us is the beautiful invitation of the gospel of Jesus. Not being dazzled by like flashy brilliance, not being coerced or manipulated by raw displays of heavenly power, but drawn into intimacy through humility, sacrifice, and love. Philippians 2 tells us that Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. 
By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. But you see, not only was Jesus unrecognizably humble in his appearance, Isaiah tells us that it's actually worse. Jesus even became appalling. Isaiah 52 says, Just as many were appalled at him, his appearance was disfigured beyond that of any man, and his form was marred beyond human likeness. This is also likely why Mary does not recognize Jesus, because he is so severely scarred. But here's the confidence that we can draw from such a horrendous sight. The confidence that we can draw from this is that Jesus became unrecognizable so that through faith in him, we might become recognizable before God. Jesus became humanly appalling so that through faith we could receive all of his heavenly beauty. He was disfigured for our sin, broken and marred and scarred, so that we could be healed and made whole and perfected in him. I want to conclude with this. Mary is a seeker. And she seeks when everyone else has given up. And church history has given her a very dignified place because of this. She is bold. She is persistent. She's a woman of God who continues to seek. But what we need to notice is this. Even the most aggressive, determined search for Jesus is simply not enough. Look at it. She's asking questions. She's seeking evidence. If I'm reading it right, it even sounds like she is willing to fight the gardener if, she doesn't give up, if he doesn't give up the body. Like, where's the body? She's scrappy. She's ready to fight. But what all this shows us is that recognizing Jesus is not something that we can simply make happen, no matter how much we search. Recognizing Jesus is an act of God's grace. And notice that everything clicks for her her eyes are opened in faith only after Jesus reveals himself. Only after Jesus speaks her name. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Seeing Jesus does not mean that we are smarter. Seeing Jesus does not mean that we are better at believing. Seeing Jesus does not mean that we sought Jesus with more determination and grit than anyone else. There is no room for pride in seeing Jesus. Seeing Jesus is a result of our eyes being opened by God's word to us. Seeing Jesus is a gift of God's grace. Goes on to say in verse 17 and 18, Jesus said to her, do not cling to me. Strange words. For I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. 
Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. And these are difficult words, and they're actually kind of contested words, to be honest. But what I believe it means is that disciples of Jesus today must now engage the risen Lord differently than they may naturally be inclined to. We don't relate to Jesus as simply one physical presence that we can hold on to and cling to. But now, the presence of the exalted and ascended Jesus is meeting us through his Holy Spirit. And he is practically experienced through the community of his church, who is also known as, in the Bible, known as the body. As we see here, a true encounter with Jesus leads us back into community, never away from it. This is how you know you have seen the Lord. You are drawn to his people. But also seeing the risen Jesus sends us out to go tell others and to not linger in one place. She wanted to linger in that moment. And it's as if Jesus is saying, this is not a time to desperately cling to me as if you are at risk of losing me again. Nothing can separate my love from you. Don't clutch to me as simply some personal, private possession for your own. This is a time for celebration. This is a time to go share the good news that I have risen. Go tell the other disciples. Go tell them about the empty tomb. Go tell them that I'm alive and on the move. The call to us is to trust in Christ with eyes of faith to receive his word to us as truth and to go tell others about his resurrection. What will I say? Start where the first resurrection sermon began. I have seen the Lord. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for you.